Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, Senior Pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday evening service. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Thank you, Rosemary. That was beautiful. I don't know that I'd heard that one before, but I really enjoyed it. My mother's mother, so my maternal grandmother, my grandmother Monroe, was a dedicated Roman Catholic woman. Her hopes and her prayers were that I would be a Catholic priest. Uh, But I'll tell you what, I was so lost in high school and uh, such a mess Uh, that she, I think, upped right to the top praying for my salvation. And when I was in high school, she gave me a book called The Cross and the Switchblade, the story of how David Wilkerson was saved and went on to be a witness in New York City. And as she gave me that book, my grandmother Monroe looked me in the eye and she said, if you read this book, it will make you richer. And I thought, heh. And after she left, I put it on the family bookshelf, and there it stayed, gathering dust along with other books. And in the fullness of time, I became a Christian as a senior in high school at a Baptist church. I followed the friend that led me to the Lord, to Bryan College, and was growing in my faith there. And one night, they showed the movie, The Cross and the Switchblade. And I didn't realize why that registered to me, but I saw that testimony out, given out like that. And sure enough, the next time I was home on a fall break or a winter break or one of those breaks, uh, I was looking at the bookshelf and there was that book, The Cross and the Switchblade. And I said, I've just seen the movie. There's the book. And it connected with me. That's that book that my grandmother Monroe gave me way back in high school. And I remember pulling it down and I started to thumb through it and a $10 bill fell out. And I thought, my goodness, if I had read that book back in the day, not only may I, I might have become a Christian a little sooner and saved myself a lot of grief, but I also would have had that $10 sooner, you know, and all those things. Well, later in life, she knew that I, as a Baptist preacher, was as close to a priest as she was going to get. And so... She uh, she lived in the Atlanta area, and I was a recruiter for Bryan College for a couple years after graduating from there, and I happened to be in the area. I met her for lunch at the Crystal's parking lot. It was one of the busiest uh, Crystal's parking lots in all of America, all the world. Cars were whizzing by, but Grandmother Monroe, who was a little crazy, um, she asked me to kneel there in the Crystal's parking lot, and she took out her anointing oil, and she anointed me for gospel ministry. And I don't know if it was as a Baptist or a Catholic or whatever, but God had answered her prayers, just not the way she thought. And I got to tell those stories at her funeral, and it was a lot of fun. Well, a recap of the book of Daniel so far. I mean, we are in the home stretch now. The first six chapters are major events in the life of Daniel, mostly in Babylon. And immediately, the faith of Daniel and his friends became known far and wide. 
Ezekiel's time in Babylon actually overlapped with Daniel. And I've written in your notes there what he said in Ezekiel 14, verses 14, he says it again in 20, and then he says it again later in the book. But he said, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And um, so Daniel had been lumped already by his peers with the godliness of a Noah. And, of course, Noah's righteousness kept the world going in his day. Had been lumped with Job, who, of course, was so godly despite his sorrows and struggles. And, uh, and there he was right with them. Well, in the last six chapters, major visions are given to Daniel about four kingdoms and both comings of Jesus the Messiah. Daniel 7 is actually the repeat of a different kind, but it says the same things as what's in Daniel 2, an overview of all four kingdoms that are going to come after the days of uh, Daniel, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And both chapter 2 and chapter 7 have the emergence of the Antichrist, and they talk about that future end time reality when the Son of Man will defeat uh, the Antichrist at his second coming. In Daniel 8, there was more detail given on the second and third kingdoms, Medo-Persia and Greece, including a type of Antichrist, the man Antiochus Ephenes. In Daniel 9, the great prophecy of the 77s was given that we believe is a prophecy of 490 years from the giving of a decree to when Messiah was slaughtered for our sins, but then there's a missing seven-year period, and that's the great tribulation time that is to come. In Daniel 10, we had that wonderful introduction to his last vision where the spiritual warfare was gone over. And I'm going to make my first point before we actually read, and we're going to read in a little bit of creative way today, but what God had said would happen did happen. The things that God gave Daniel to prophesy have happened in time, and there's some yet to come for the second coming, some things that happened during his first coming. We see it over and over again in this wonderful book of Daniel. And together, those fulfilled prophecies give us great confidence in the truth of the inerrant word of God, the perfect word of God. God stands above time. He can tell you what happens in advance. So prophecy is history in advance. It's his story, and things are ebbing and flowing toward what he wants to have happen. So in just a few moments, you see I've got a second podium up here. In just a few moments, my daughter Hope is going to help uh, give the reading of the scripture here and the commentary because there are so many different things that happen in chapter uh, 11 here. But verse 1 actually goes with chapter 10. Do you remember chapter 10? The angel was talking to Daniel. And look at verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. That's the angel telling Daniel what he had done in the first year. He had confirmed and strengthened the king. And Darius was one governor under Cyrus, and Cyrus had been risen up to make the great decree that would allow the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple, and God had strengthened him for that purpose. So it was really powerful, all that had happened in fulfillment of a prophecy made by Isaiah over a hundred years before that somebody named Cyrus would be raised up to rebuild the temple of God. The later decree was, of course, the rebuilding of the walls and all those things, and that happens in the book of Nehemiah's day, and that's when that time clock started ticking toward Christ's uh, triumphal entry and his death in Jerusalem for sinners. So, so many neat things were going on. Well, at least three things were converging before Daniel's eyes, and here's a fill-in-the-blank for you. Believers like Daniel had been praying, angels had been working, and prophecy was being fulfilled. So, when you pray... 
Your prayers are being heard. They're being answered. The angel made quite clear to Daniel that at the moment he began praying, God's answer was on the way. Daniel had been praying. Angels had been working. Prophecy was being fulfilled. Now, let me ask you a question that Daniel keeps making us think about. How do our prayers and our actions relate to what God tells us is going to happen in God's Word? What is our part as we pray and as we act? How does God take those things in and make His will come to pass uh, in the amazing ways that He does? And of course, theologians and philosophers have grappled with that forever, so we're not going to settle it today, but you do very well sometimes when you're affirming things that are in the Scripture, and theologians have been doing this (laughs) forever and a day. Uh, We we know statements the Scripture makes, and as you hear them, you go, yes, we can draw a circle and say, yes, this is the truth of God, and people will make a statement, and you'll go, yeah, that's what God's Word says, so that's inside the circle. Outside the circle would be a false statement about the truth of God. And so sometimes you'll hear people make a statement, and part of it's in, part of it's out, and we just need to remember and to be able to say, to take the word and say, no, that last part you said there, that's fishy according to the word of God. That's not how it relates. And it keeps us together talking with each other from the word of God about the word of God so scripture can correct our misunderstandings rather than us make scripture twist into whatever theological understanding we have. Uh, anyone who has spent any time in their Bible knows both these things to be true. The first one is, our prayers and actions change our own destiny and that of others. The call to pray to make a difference in this world is legitimate. It's not a facade. It does matter that you pray and it does matter that you act on the truth you have. It affects things in real time. It affects the future of things. That is an absolutely great uh, statement. Every once in a while, a person contemplates suicide because they think their life doesn't matter. But researchers say that when a person commits suicide, they profoundly and adversely affect the future of at least six other people. And they think nobody cares, nobody matters, and yet at least six people out there uh, are devastated uh, by the loss. And many times it's many more than that. And having done five of those funerals, I can amen that. By the way, uh, later in the spring, we're actually going to have Dr. Ron Hawkins from Liberty University come. And he has done a lot of ministry in this area of uh, suicide prevention And he is going to speak to us in the morning, and that night we're going to have a panel discussion here, and we're going to consider everybody that comes that evening uh, to be among those we're training to help make a difference and let people know they matter to God and they matter to us. Amen? So our prayers and our actions change our own destiny others. The second thing that anyone who's spent any time in their Bible knows to be true is that somehow God brings about what he said he would despite what we would do. Sometimes it's easier to draw things out, and so I've got this here to draw for you. And I want you to picture a river uh, that's flowing, and its current is going heavy and strong in the way that it's going. Think of that as the will of God for planet Earth. Can you all see that over there? It's just me blocking it, right? Both sides, you all can see, okay, over here. Um, Then think of three tributaries that flow into that river. The prayers and actions of believers are kind of like a tributary that flows in to that river. Um, So 
prayers and actions of believers and unbelievers, the supernatural activity of the angels and demons, biblical prophecies, all tributaries. We mentioned the ones that are there that flow in like that. And as they go in, they go the same way. Now, some streams flowing into a river are going the direction of, and some are not, right? Coming down from the mountains or whatever, they're flowing in, and they would push back against for a little bit as they go into the mighty current, they would go that way. But what always happens? They get redirected so that it's going this way, right? And so some, when you as a believer are acting in concert with the will of God, it seems like you're just flowing right in and moving along to what God has for you. When your choices are against the Lord and what he has for your life, it feels like you're fighting God himself. And even though uh, you have to face the consequences of your decision, what God wants to have happen in the long term will have happen. And so he redirects things as he will. Um, The river overcomes the stream and redirects the water in the direction the river is flowing. And so it is with the actions of non-believers and the activity of demons where those contrary streams meet the river. There's a torrent of activity, but the stream is never going to win, right? At this point, when it's flowing against the river, there's a torrent of activity, but it's not going to keep going that way. It's going to get redirected. And so it is with how God brings his will to pass, even though things look a little messy in there. Now... There are over 60 prophecies in Daniel 11 alone that God told Daniel would happen and have already been fulfilled. And remember, they happened hundreds of years after Daniel wrote, some decades after he wrote, some a few hundred years after he wrote. And they include everything previously said about the time of Medo-Persia and Greece already, and then some leading up again to the time of the little Antichrist, Antiochus, and from there seemingly to the end of times and the big bad Antichrist to come in the tribulation. So we're going to look at verses 2 through 35 tonight, which are already fulfilled. Then next week we'll include verses 36 to 45. And here's where I invite Hope to come join me here. And so what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to listen to her and to me and be looking at the verse numbers that she gives you as we go down through here because this is kind of like the grand finale in a fireworks show, uh, you know, just boom, 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 right? The little ones show you, and then the big ones come, and that's what's happening as we go along here. So, you ready? I'm ready. Sound check? Check, check. All right. Okay, verse 2. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than them all. Okay, so the fourth king after Cyrus would have been Xerxes or Ahasuerus, Esther's future husband. He shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Xerxes' failed campaign against the Greeks, that was 481 to 479 BC, was the beginning of the end for Persia. They had other kings, but you could stick a fork in them, they were done. Verse 3, then a mighty king shall arise and do what he wants. That would be Alexander the Great. Verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided four ways. None of the ways will involve his posterity. None of the ways will rule just like he did. After Alexander's untimely death at 33 years of age, the kingdom was divided not into three parts, not into five. Now there was a fifth effort, but it wound up being exactly four They were Macedonia to the east, Asia Minor to the west, Egypt to the south, and Syria to the north. Verse 5. The king of the south will become strong, so will one of his princes. That would be the Ptolemies in Egypt. When we say Ptolemies, it's P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. Verse 6. 
After some years, they will join forces. His daughter will try to make an agreement with the king of the north, but it will fail, and with it, his own authority. Ptolemy II gave his daughter Bernice in marriage to Syria's king Antiochus II Theos. The problem was that he divorced his wife to marry Bernice. (laughs) That wife later killed Bernice and her ex-hubby and their baby. Her son Seleucus II Callinicus became the new king. Verse 7. But one of her relatives will defeat the king of the north. Bernice's Egyptian brother, Ptolemy III, came north and whipped Syria. Verse 8. He will storm the north's fortress and take their gods to Egypt. He will outlast the king of the north. That's documented. Ptolemy III brought Syria's goods back to Egypt. Verse 9. The king of the north will try to do something about it, but will return home. Syria's Callinicus attacked Egypt in 240 B.C., but was soundly beaten and returned home. Verse 10. His sons will seek revenge and stir things up. One of them will successfully recapture the fortress. Yep, that happened too. Verse 11. The king of the south won't like it. His troops will defeat the king of the south's troops. Ptolemy IV Philopator whooped Antiochus III the not-so-great. Verse 12. The king of the south will kill thousands, but not achieve total victory. They didn't even have time to remodel. These are his notes. (laughs) Verse 13. The king of the north will reorganize and after some years return to fight. Thirteen years later, Antiochus the Pretty Great came south and controlled Israel right on the doorstep of his old friend Egypt. Verse 14. At that time, many others will rise against the king of the south. There will be a violent Jewish rebellion, but it will fail. There was a violent Jewish rebellion against Egyptian occupation that had failed. Verse 15. But the king of the north will not fail. He will defeat the king of the south. Then to verse 16. The king of the north won't stop there. He will also occupy Israel. And we described that above, yep. Verse 17. He'll seek to strong arm Israel. Many Jews will stand with him. And he'll even use his own daughter to achieve his ends, giving his daughter to the king of the south in a marriage alliance he would use against Egypt. But she'll choose her husband's south over daddy's north. Her name was Cleopatra. Enough said. Verse 18. After this, the king of the north will occupy the coastland, that's the west, but a ruler will stand up to him and stop him. Antiochus the Great, he gave himself that title, Antiochus Epiphanes, then turned to try and mess with the Mediterranean areas to the northwest, but was stuffed by the up-and-coming Roman Empire. Verse 19. He'll try to retreat back to his fortress in the north, but he'll stumble, fall, and not be found. So Rome decided to penalize him for his aggression and sent some thugs to collect a little money for the trouble he had caused them. As Antiochus the Great ran away from them, he disappeared mysteriously. Verse 20. In his place shall arise one who overtaxes the Jews. That won't last long. He'll be destroyed, but not in battle. Rome decided to require payment from the next Syrian king, Seleucus IV. He decided to get the money by bullying it out of Israel. He died after he ate some poison food. Verse 21. Next will arise a vile person not given the honor of royalty. He'll come peaceably at first and gain power through politicking. So the other guy called himself Antiochus the Great. This one called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, like we said in other chapters. This is the one we've already heard of. He shouldn't have become king. It took the murder of his brother and the kidnapping of another heir to allow him to seize the throne. Verse 22. 
When he can, he'll defeat others like a flood and the prince of the covenant. So he gained a strong victory over the Egyptians. He also convinced Menelaus, the brother of the high priest of Israel, Ananias III, to off his brother and side with Antiochus. So Israel had a high priest. He convinced the priest's brother to kill him, and he made him the priest. Ananias III died and was replaced by Antiochus's new stooge, Menelaus, as the priest of Israel. Verse 23. He will honor the terms of the deals he makes, though. He'll infiltrate Egypt with a small number of his people in key places. Then in verse 24, he'll gain the confidence of even the rich through sweetheart deals. Verse 25, he will take on the king of the south, and the king of the south will fight back, but fall. Verse 26, the king of the south will be betrayed by people whom he fed. Many people will die. So he made a deal with one of the Egyptian Ptolemies against another Ptolemy. Soon, Memphis was loyal to him, and that quickly extended all the way to Alexandria. Not Memphis, Tennessee, Alexandria, Virginia, but Memphis, Egypt, and Alexandria, Egypt too. Never one for loyalty to anyone but himself, Antiochus started undercutting his Ptolemy. Verse 27, These kings will have hearts bent on evil, characterized by lies and deception, even when they broke bread and said they're trying to work together. But neither will prosper, and they will fall at the appointed time. So eventually, the two Ptolemies realized they were both being played by Antiochus and agreed to a joint rule, ganging back up on him. Verse 28. On the way back to the north, the king of the north will lash out against the Jews and the Jewish faith. So on his way back to Syria, Antiochus Ephenes met a Jewish revolt. He was already frustrated. He crushed that revolt in his anger, killing 80,000 men, taking 40,000 prisoners, selling 40,000 more as slaves, and made sure Menelaus remained his corrupt priest. Verse 29. At the appointed time, the king of the north will invade south again. again. This time, things will be different. That's how it happened in 168 B.C. The Ptolemies were too strong. He wanted to conquer Egypt but could not. Verse 30. This time, ships from Cyprus will attack him. Returning in defeat this time, he will act in even greater rage toward the Jews. As he comes back, though, he'll reward his Benedict Arnolds. Antiochus was frustrated because now he not only had Egypt to deal with, but Rome as well as it was gaining strength. And he took it out once again on Israel only having mercy on those Israelites that had already compromised their faith. Verse 31, he will defile the temple. He'll stop twice a day sacrifices. He'll place there the abomination of desolation. So in Jerusalem, Antiochus had men, women, and children slaughtered this time as well. Soldiers ripped through the temple. A statue of Zeus was put up. It actually had Antiochus Eponis' face on it. Uh, circumcision and proper sacrifices were ended. A pig was sacrificed on the altar, highly offensive to the Jews, desecrating the proper way of sacrificing. In Matthew twenty four fifteen, Jesus said these type things will happen again under the Antichrist in the last days. Verse 32, he'll honor those who dishonor God, but God will raise up people who will do daring exploits. Verse 33, God will raise up faithful preachers in that day to tell the truth. Many of them will be persecuted and even killed. Verse 34, some will stand with them for the right reasons. Others will stand with them for the wrong reasons. Faithful Jews like the Hasidians stood up and refused to compromise. Judas Maccabeus, helped by Rome, led a successful revolt. This is 
those books that we don't count scripture, neither did the Jews, but tell some great history. Books like First and Second Maccabees tell the story of this. Hanukkah reminds us of God's miraculous intervention during that time. So that's really neat when you think about that. God will raise up men to do daring exploits. And to this day, the exploits of those Jewish warriors is remembered uh, by those as they celebrate Hanukkah and how they took back the temple despite overwhelming uh, enemy force. And last one, verse 35. Some of God's people will fall, but they will be seen again in the end. (laughs) Isn't that great? They'll fall, but they'll be seen again at the end. Isn't that cool? With this verse, we transition into the great truth that the Antichrist of this world can take the body, but they can't take the soul. Good job, Hope. Thank her for doing that. That would have been a lot to try to cover just going through it meticulously, right? So that's why I gave it to us that way. Um, But it just is so neat. It was great, when you think about it, for Israel to be able to draw some comfort by having Daniel in advance as they faced those dark days because there were so many things coming for them. And God had given them Daniel in advance so they would know, huh, this corresponds to what's happening, but let's keep our faith in him. Let's not compromise. And he'll bring his will to pass, just like the illustration of the river there. There were more fragments found of Daniel among the Dead Sea Scrolls than any other Old Testament book. So Jews before Christ came and drew great strength from this book. I mean, it's obvious that's the case, you know. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls when they found all kinds of Scripture fragments and those things there. Daniel was the number one they found of fragments there because of the great encouragement it was to them as they faced some of these very things happening along the way and passed them down to the next generations. And this is why I love to think about this. Uh, When we think about the future time, so at the end of the church age, the church will be raptured to heaven, and that's what a good number of us believe based on the data. When I believe that, I'm including things like just what the purpose of the tribulation is. When you look at everything the Scripture says about that final seven-year period in the time of tribulation, it describes it as a time where God will begin his judgment of the satanic world system culminating in when he comes back to earth and just defeats the Antichrist and all those forces. Secondly, it's a time where he'll be regathering his Jewish people, thus the two main Jewish witnesses, the 144,000 that are raised up. He's regathering his people for all he's going to do during his thousand-year reign on Christ described in Revelation 20. And I also believe there will be many last chances for people to turn to Christ during that time. Uh, But if you look at how it lays out, Revelation 3.10 gives the promise. Let's fact turn there before we get back to Daniel 11. Revelation 3.10 in the flow of the book seems to give a great promise to believers that we won't be around during that time, at least those who were connected with the church age. Revelation 3.10 says, Because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world, not just the city of Philadelphia that particular church was in, but the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That phrase, earth dweller, those who dwell on the earth, occurs frequently during the time of the revelation, the time of the tribulation from Revelation 6 to 19, but the word for church does not. Because you've kept my command to obey, because you've persevered, because you're overcomers, I'll keep you from that time that's coming. 
and the word church doesn't come back in until the very end of the book of Revelation when he's mopping up and saying, the Spirit says come, Jesus says come, the bride of Christ, the church says come, you come to Jesus and be born again. So let's think about that. Once the church is gone and everybody's trying to figure out what happened, I believe the book of Daniel is going to take on all new kinds of meaning to our Jewish friends as they try to figure out what's going on and why this figure is rising up that's making a covenant with them like Daniel 9 talks about and like unfolds in the book of Revelation and why three and a half years in, all of a sudden, he turns on the Jewish people and all hell breaks loose on earth during those last three and a half years. And they'll find it's spelled out thousands of years in advance through the book of Daniel and then repeated and reiterated on the book of Revelation. And I believe it will be part of uh, those 144,000 witnesses and others coming to know Christ and witnessing for him. Of course, it's going to be pretty cool to see Moses and Elijah preaching without being able to be taken out or whatever else is happening with those two witnesses during that time. It's pretty cool uh, to think about. But it's also very encouraging for us now because we come to realize this. What God had said would happen did happen. As we read in reverse, we go, my goodness, there was just prophecy after prophecy there in, in Daniel chapter 11 that told how it would be, and it's like reading a history book when we go through. And there's nobody that doubts that's what's happened. It's just that the liberal scholars say, there is no way that could have been written in advance. And yet we already saw Ezekiel knew who Daniel was, right? And in the books they had them there. The process of translating the Old Testament into Greek had already begun happening and other things too. A lot to think about there. There's a key word and a key phrase in this great chapter. And it's the word shell, S-H-A-L-L. The word shell appears over a hundred times. And the phrase appointed time appears in verses 27 and 35. Not only can we say what God said would happen did happen, that leads us also to confidently say this, what God has said will happen, will happen, amen? So fulfilled prophecy gives us confidence of how it lays out for us to come. Now, we're pretty simple around here. We've read the Bible, and we see scores of things that God had said in advance would happen. And then we look at history, and we see that they did happen. Then we read the Bible, and we see all these things the Bible says are going to happen, and we believe they're going to. And we have to be uh, careful here. We want to say that the Scripture lays it out so we'll know and have the confidence in God to believe Him, to do what He says, and there will be plenty of a wonder in our eyes as it all unfolds. But we think about those who went too far, people like the Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults and sects that several times predicted that the Lord would come back at such and such a time and year, and it didn't happen. Now, the Old Testament told Israel to stone prophets that got it wrong. I think in our day, we can just politely disregard all that false prophets teach, you know. And so when you run into a cult that has said and got it wrong, so they had to say and pick something else a year like 1844 for the, uh, you know, the millennium to start or those type things, uh, we can just politely disregard what they say and tell others to be careful about the, listening to the teachings of cults. But here's our message to those who don't know the Bible. Since what God said would happen did happen, that gives us every reason to believe that what God has said will happen, will happen. Amen? Amen. Shouldn't you then get serious about what God has said will happen? So, 
what's absolutely clear? He, clear. he has told us that everyone will die and then there will be a day of judgment. Hebrews 7.25. It's appointed. There's that appointed word again. It's appointed for each one, for men to die once and after this, the judgment. So there is a time of evaluation coming. For non-believers, we see that judgment all the way at the great white throne judgment that's talked about at the end of Revelation in Revelation 20. And it says there those that don't turn to Christ and don't get their sins forgiven by God's grace will actually have to stand before God and give an account for everything they've done and how bad hell will be for them will be based on their wicked actions and deeds. And that's a frightening thing to take it, talk, think about. It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. He has told us that those who receive Jesus will have eternal life with him. You know John 3.16, right? Uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So when we read the prophecies of Christ coming that first time, we read of essentially of him coming on a great rescue mission because of Adam and Eve's original sin. We're all born with a sin nature. Early on in life, we start making our own sin choices. We're sinners by nature and by choice. We're alienated from God, and we find ourselves under judgment, headed for judgment. And so John 3.17 is so wonderful because it says when he came that first time, it was not to condemn the world, but the people that were already condemned to save them, the ultimate rescue mission, right? And so I've told you John 3.16. More of you need to know John 3.36. The one who believes has life, comma. The one who does not believe will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on them. By God's grace, when a person turns to Christ... He takes their sin and puts it timelessly on the cross and deals with it. It is finished, paid in full. That was what they used to write, that same word, to die, paid in full on documents of sale. It's paid in full, all it would take to be right and to have the account settled. And he takes Christ's righteousness and puts it on us, and that's our standing before God uh, in the future. So, you know, there's the appointed unto man wants to die and then the judgment, But for believers, they're not going to face that great white throne judgment because they're bathed in the righteousness of Christ. Salvation is by God's grace through our faith in Jesus and receiving this wonderful gift that he's given us. That does not mean that the things we do as believers do not matter, right? What has God told us will happen? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So... Christ is the dividing line. If you know him, you're going to get the gift of heaven. If you don't, you're not going to get the gift of heaven. You will go to the lake of fire, and the lake of fire, we're told, will have correspondingly worse punishments for those who have behaved worse and done worse and evil things. But for believers, we're told that even though because of Christ is the only reason we're going to be in heaven, he tells us there will be a time of reward to come. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 He says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Christ is our foundation. He's the reason we're going to heaven. We rejoice in that. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, builds on their faith, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. This is not hellfire here. This is evaluation fire, like when gold's put in the fire, and the dross is consumed, and the gold is refined, and it comes out better. And the, the, the one that's doing the work, like the great uh, smith that God is, uh, we're told that it's perfect when he can see his reflection in it. Does God see himself when he looks at you and the life that you live by faith in him? The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Look at verse 14. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So God wants to reward his children. The only reason we're going to heaven is because of what he's done for us. That's his gift to us. But he wants to reward us for having, now that we're saved and having all our sins forgiven and going to heaven, our reserve place there, he wants to reward us for the things that we do for him, the things we think, the things we speak, the things we do for him. And so picture your life, every action you make, everything you say, everything you think, as being part of a pile that's growing next to you, awaiting that time of evaluation before the Lord. If it's one of the golden things, like gold, silver, precious stones, it's going to remain when the fire is put to it. But all the things we do that are about us and are sinful, are, you know, and, and he can't reward, is just like cardboard or straw or something that when the match is put to it will just go away. And we're told in this passage... 1 Corinthians 3, that we ought to want to have that pile be as big as possible, things that he can reward, right? And throughout the New Testament, he's told us the things that he can reward, like our prayer life, like our witnessing, like things done in his name, the giving we do that advances his kingdom, all those things, not done just for the sake of the reward, but it ought to be part of our thinking. You run into a lot of lower motivation Christians, Uh, who it's about fear, it's about obligation, it's about guilt. And so they just kind of go through. But if that's all your motivation is, and those are all biblical motivations, sometimes the base level fear of God will keep you from doing something stupid. A sense of obligation will keep you on the right track and keep you from doing something wrong. A sense of guilt will get you back on track when you've sinned. But if that's all you ever got, that leads you to a life living in a fog, right? The baseline for the next level is gratitude. You're so grateful for what Christ has done for you that you gratefully serve him. But sometimes when we think about what Christ has done, I've been a Christian for 34 years now, 52 years old, 17 years as a non-believer. Now two-thirds of my life has been lived as a believer. Oh, yeah, I'm so grateful for Christ saving me at 17. But many times we wind up having a sense of back then instead of now. And so what are the three higher motivations the scriptures always give us when we serve God? And we're going to come to Daniel chapter 12, and we're going to see this is the kind of life he had. It's faith, it's hope, it's love, right? What does faith say? Faith said, the God I'm grateful to for saving me back there is the same God who I follow today. And he's got a great plan for my life. That's why I want to do what it says in the word. I want his best for me. And he's not going to lie to me. So if I follow his plan, it's going to be better for me. There's a sense of giddiness and eager expectation of this life lived by faith in him now. Then there's hope. Hope is not only the certainty that we're going to be in heaven with him, but also it's I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. So that's where 
all the things that he can reward come in and it becomes exciting to live a life that you see and that he can reward. Of course, the highest motivation is love. My goodness, you got a great relationship with the Lord. He's loved you so much, you want to love him back. And if you can keep faith, hope, and love right in front of you at all times, listen, there will be times where you have to drop back and a sense of obligation will save you again. Not save in the forever sense, but keep you from doing something dumb, right? But you just don't want to live in faith, in in fear, obligation, guilt. You want to get up to where it's faith, hope, and love, a daily reality in your life. And when that happens, you'll start you'll start snowballing the things that he can reward in you. You can make a difference now and in the future for Jesus. I think about Daniel. He made the most of his opportunities as a young man, and here we see God using him as an old man as well, writing things that would influence people until Jesus comes back. Some of you may have got to hear the great evangelist Ron Dunn. We had him twice at Wayne Hills for Revival. He's in heaven now. But one of his teachings was so neat. He said, there's a reason the time of evaluation is after this whole church age is done. Because the life you live, when it's lived for Christ and his glory, keeps on making an impact in generations to come. There are people still being blessed by John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's still bearing fruit because of what he did, right? And so when you you think about how eternity views things and you're making a difference for eternity... You may put some things in motion that will keep bearing fruit two, three, four, five generations from now. When somebody you taught is teaching somebody else who taught somebody else and down the line. When you gave a financial gift and a well was put in India and a pastor there shared the gospel with somebody visiting that well and it went forth and forth like that. And all those connections, all those connections won't even be able to be appreciated until Christ's wonderful time that he has us before him at the Bema Seat Judgment when he is rewarding that which is done in his name. You know, there's all kinds of these award ceremonies and things on earth where people talk about this athlete or this musician or this actor, but God's got his own one of those coming. And when we're there, it's all going to be about Jesus because we're going to realize the only reason we're ready to make any impact was because of him and what he did in and through us. But when that time comes and you hear, Caleb, let's bring Caleb up here and let's celebrate what Caleb did for Christ. Let's bring Irene up here and celebrate what Irene did for Christ. What a powerful, powerful moment that would be. He's told us this time is coming and we ought to be preparing for it and excited about it living a life that thinks about future days like that to come. William Jennings Bryan said, Destiny is not a matter of chance. It's a matter of choice. It's not something to be waited for. It's something to be achieved. You can change your own destiny by thinking thoughts after God and His Word, by your prayers, by your life. And you can change the destiny of others by speaking the truth to them, just like Daniel did. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. 
Thanks for listening. And we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Tabernacle Today.